1: Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15, verses 7 through 11, which can be found on page 165 of the Old Testament if you would like to follow along. Listen now for the word of the Lord. If there is is among you anyone in need, a member of your community, and any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You shall rather open your hand willingly, lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Be careful that you do not entertain a mean thought, thinking the seventh year, the year of the remission, is near, and therefore view your needy neighbor with, hus- with hostility and give nothing, Your neighbor might cry to the Lord against you, and you will incur guilt. Give liberally and be ungrudging when you do so. For on this account, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake, since there is never ceased to be some in need on the earth. I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Our second text is from the Gospel of Matthew, the sixth chapter. This is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're just reading the first four verses of this text, page five in the New Testament, if you'd like to follow along as I read. Jesus said, Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be praised by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your alms may be done in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. O Lord, you are God alone. We ask that you would break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Jonathan Merritt is a prominent author and speaker. He's recently written a book I referenced a couple weeks ago. It's called Learning to Speak God. Uh, Jonathan Merritt will be one of our Theo Ed speakers this fall. And he has in this book articulated some of the dangers that we face as a society when we lose the language of God. He says this, we are word-shaped beings who live word-shaped lives within word-shaped communities. Words have power, words have import, words matter. They shape our meaning and our understanding of our lives, of the world, of one another, and ultimately of God. As a congregation, we are now halfway through our series, Speaking Lent, And this series has invited us to claim and reclaim some of the vocabulary of this liturgical season. The next three words over the course of the next three weeks in our series uh, form somewhat of a Lenten trio. In fact, in the Roman Catholic tradition, these three are called the three pillars of Lent. Almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. These words belong to Lent. They belong to this season even as they belong uh, to one another. Uh, We see them belong to each other in Matthew 6. We only read a portion of it this morning, but we'll see over the next couple of weeks that Jesus talks about all three in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Matthew 6 is traditionally reserved for the start of Lent. It's the lectionary text for Ash Wednesday. But I knew we were doing a sermon series, and I knew I needed to include these three words, so I've held it until now. Because in these three, we start to see some of the, the core practices and habits of faith-filled piety. You see, when we learn to speak Lent, uh, we learn the language of almsgiving. We learn the language of prayer. We learn the language of fasting. These three highlight the core practices and performance of Jewish piety. And so naturally, they're a part of Jesus' piety too. He is the model. He is the pattern of these Three, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting, these habits of the heart, Jesus has shaped our understanding of them. He has set the pattern and the way for us to embrace them and live them out. We give because God has given us everything in Christ. We pray because God has spoken exactly what we need to hear in Christ. We fast because God has demonstrated self-denial. God has demonstrated an emptying for the sake of love and reconciliation for all of creation. We know these three because Jesus has modeled them for us. So this trio, this triad, begins with an old-fashioned word, almsgiving. And almsgiving, a textbook definition, would be related to our financial generosity to the poor and the outcast, the downtrodden and forgotten, those who are physically in need. And I want us to be thinking about how that word functions in its classical sense the ways in which we give financially to meet the needs of the physically poor. But I also want to uh, enlarge our imagination about this idea of almsgiving. I want to apply it to all of our financial generosity, the ways in which we give to support the work and witness of the kingdom of God, And so as we jump into our text this morning, I want you to immediately notice from Matthew chapter 6 that Jesus is not trying to convince anyone as to why they should give. It's simply not there. He is not making a case. He's not making a pitch. He's not making an apology as to why someone should contribute to the work and witness of the kingdom of God. And I think the reason he doesn't do it is because he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. The law given to Moses at Mount Sinai, the ethical life that the Jew was Invited to participate in as a response to God's covenantal call upon them, that law, that word, has already answered the question, why give? There's no need to answer it again. Sarah Kate read it for us this morning. Words from Deuteronomy. If there is among you anyone in need, a member of your community, in any of your towns within the land, that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard hearted or tight fisted toward your needy neighbor. Why give? The writer of Deuteronomy makes the case plainly. Why give? Because God has given you a land. Why give? Because God has made God's home with you. Why give? God has liberated you from bondage in Egypt. Why give? Because God is not hard hearted, God is not tight fisted. God is generous. Why give? Because God gives. The writer is saying that our generosity flows naturally from the generosity of God. Author and psychologist Jonathan Kozol tells a story in a book that he wrote many years ago The book's entitled Amazing Grace, and it's a story about a little boy named Cliffy. Uh, Mott Haven is a section in the Bronx, New York City, where Cliffy grew up, and it was a tough place to, to grow up in, marred by crime and violence and poverty. Kozel, who was working with Cliffy and others in his neighborhood, he noted that Cliffy had seen murders on his block. He noted that he played in parks and in and in vacant spaces within the city where drug deals went down, where drug use was prevalent. But also in the middle of his neighborhood was a Catholic church. It was called St. Anne's, and it was a place literally and figuratively where kids in that neighborhood could find sanctuary. I just got back from Brazil with a team. We're visiting one of our partner churches in a neighborhood of Fortaleza, Brazil. And it's one of these neighborhoods that the church has has said the only refuge in the midst of of hard living in the midst of drugs and violence is the church and has created safe space for children. The same was true about St. Anne's where kids are coming together to learn about Jesus and to learn about God's love for them. Well, one day Cliffy was telling Jonathan Kozel a story about how his parents sent him out to get dinner for that night. He had very little money in his pocket, enough to buy three pieces of pizza from the pizza shop around the corner. And so he picked up three pieces and he was walking home when he saw a man on the street. Cliffy was telling Dr. Kozel that it was so cold and the man was so cold that he couldn't even speak. He couldn't move his mouth. He said, but I knew he was hungry because he pointed to my pizza. When Kozel asked little Cliffy, well, what did you do? the boy looked at him with such a look that said, you should know better as an adult as to what I did. You shouldn't even be asking me that question. He said, I gave him a piece, of course. And then Kozel asked a very adult follow-up question, a very rational and reasonable question. He said, well, were your parents mad at you? Again, with equal disdain, little Cliffy looked back at Kozel and said, why would they be mad? God told us to share. French philosopher Jacques Derrida has written about many things. He's also written a little bit about generosity. And he has this idea that there are acts of generosity, and then there are acts of pure generosity. Generosity. They're acts of pure giving, and he defines pure giving in these terms. He says it happens when the giver gives without knowing, without calculating, without reckoning, or hoping for something in return. For one must give without counting if they're going to give a pure gift. I think Cliffy models this kind of pure giving. He models this kind of generosity. He he has an instinct for it. In his neighbor's moment of need, he responds and doesn't hesitate. He doesn't need to be persuaded. He doesn't need to be convinced. He doesn't need to be sold as to why he will give. He just gives, and I would suggest to you, he gives this way because he knows God. He knows God, and so he shares. Friends, maybe it's a byproduct of our secular age, or perhaps it's, a, it's the byproduct of generosity becoming more and more disconnected from spirituality or disconnected from our religious life, even in the life of Christians that I meet from time to time whose confessions of faith are disconnected from what they do with their money. Or perhaps it is the inescapability of capitalistic culture that has created competition, that there are so many people and entities vying for our money, that in all of this, we feel like we have to be convinced as to why we should give. Make your case. Explain it to me, and I'll decide whether or not I'll give. How else do you explain professional fundraising? No offense to professional fundraisers, but you're part of a $1 billion industry. A billion dollars we spend so that we can ask people for money. A billion dollar industry. Every institution, every nonprofit has a strategy, right, has a staff has a consultant to help them pitch their cause. There is a fascinating uh, academic and practitioner named Dr. Jen Shang. She self-describes as a philanthropic psychologist. Did you know there was such a thing? She's an expert regarding why people respond positively or negatively to an invitation to give. She evaluates it from a psychological perspective. She's convinced that the messaging and the tone and the language that is employed to encourage someone to give must meet the potential giver's psychological needs. For example, and I find this to be both interesting, comical, and somewhat sad, People who consider making a financial contribution to some cause or some institution perceive themselves as moral people. Did you catch that? Just thinking about giving makes someone think they're a moral person. Just thinking about it, not actually doing it. In her research, she has determined that people think that they're being moral by just thinking about giving. So Dr. Shang says that you have to work in words that satisfy their own sense of morality and goodness. You've got to tap into it and play off of it, encouraging that morality and that goodness that they've already applied to themselves before they've even made a gift. Words like kind and caring, compassionate, honest, helpful ought to be used to make that connection. There is a science and a psychology behind all of this. And let's be very clear, the church is not immune to the lore of what this promises. I mean, seminars and, and conferences on increasing church giving are becoming more and more commonplace. I know this to be true because I attend most of them. In fact, part of my sabbatical, which I'm very excited for, which begins in May, Part of it will be spent at the University of Indiana School of Philanthropy, learning how to lead a capital campaign. As we continue to lean into our long-range strategic plan, as we continue to make our way to our 175th anniversary, we are in the process of a campus master plan. As we speak, more of that will come to bear in the months and years ahead. As we consider what it means to be set up for our third century of ministry that is yet to come. So I wanna be clear, I obviously place value on this kind of learning. I think it would be less than faithful if I or you weren't informed about best practices, about trends, about skills, about models that help increase a congregation like ours, increase our financial strength. But even as I say all these things and share all these things, I'm convicted because Jesus isn't a pitch man. He's not a pitch man. He doesn't spend any time on crafting the ask. He doesn't even feel it's necessary to talk about the why of giving. Jesus assumes people like Cliffy already know the reason why they should give. Here's what I think. I think that Jesus believed that if you know the God who rescued you, if you know the God you have allowed to befriend you, If you know the God that is the source of all goodness in your life, then you're generous. That's what I think Jesus thinks, period. Nobody has to make a case. There's no uh, pitch man, no preacher, no fundraiser, no consulting firm. The answer to why we give is inherent in our relationship with God and what God has done for the world. And so we know the answer to the question why. We already know it. And therefore, we all have a choice, don't we? We all have a choice to respond or not respond. And let me say that this is ubiquitous. It's universal to every person in the sound of my voice, whether you occupy a C-suite or whether you occupied space under a bridge last night or whether you're paying off student loans or whether you're taking care of an aged parent or a dependent or whether you find yourself in financial straits or whether you are on a fixed income now in retirement, the why doesn't change, it doesn't change. The why is rooted in our relationship with God for all of us, it's inherent in that relationship and we give generously because God gives generously. So Jesus isn't interested in talking about the why, but he is very much interested in talking about the how, and we're coming toward the last lap of this sermon by looking back at Matthew 6. Getting right to it, Jesus' invitation to the practice of almsgiving, he wants to cover it in radical and profound secrecy. Now, I know that for some of us, we've heard sermons about this, and and maybe some of us, we've interpreted this to kind of let us off the hook about our piety. Our first instinct, perhaps, is that, oh, see, I'm not asked to live a public faith. I'm going to do all these things in private. Jesus wants me to keep all of these things in secret. Obviously, that's not the case universally about our piety. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here in worship. You follow? Right? This is us practicing our piety in public. And just remember, Jesus in chapter 5, just a few verses before these, he said, quote, let your light shine before your closet. No, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and praise God in heaven. This isn't an excuse for us to have a privatized faith. That's not what this is about. Christian faith, while personal, is never private. It's never private. And what I think Jesus is saying, it has to do with calling these religious folk hypocrites, right? Hypocrites in, in the original context is the word for actors. And we've often thought, okay, maybe it's about someone who's insincere, who's just playing a part. But I think actually it's not about sincerity or insincerity. What I think is happening is Jesus saying, don't be like the hypocrites who perform for other people. That's what he says. He said, we, we perform for other people. It's not about sincerity, but we're performing for them. When Jesus is saying, only one pair of eyes matters. There's an audience of one. That's the one that matters. It's the audience of God. So it's not about thinking about how others perceive our generosity or perceive our giving or what we do with our money. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that that only an audience of one matters. Only God Matters God sees us give, and so what he 's saying is that we need to be totally oblivious, totally and completely oblivious to what others think about our generosity it 's not about them it 's about god and i 'll close with this because there 's one more bit of secrecy that Jesus wants. To offer. It says later on in the text we, that we should give in such a way that does not let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. You know this text. You've heard it before. But what does it mean? I think what it means is that we're not only supposed to be oblivious to what others think, that perhaps we're also called to be oblivious to what we think about our own generosity. Because when we start thinking about our own generosity and about money and about what's enough, we start to self-justify. We start to say, you know what, I'm doing enough. I've got this together. I know that I spend more money on my addiction or I spend more money on my country club dues or more money on my cars or my hobbies than what I give to the work of the kingdom of God, but I give some and I'm good. I think these are the things, analogically speaking, that we hold in our left hand. Follow me here. These are the things that we hold in our left hand, our self-justification about what we give our expectations of ourselves, of what we should give, how we think about money, how we think about enough. It's all the things that we hold in our left hand. And what Jesus is saying, I think, is to not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing because your right hand gives with abundance. Your right hand doesn't count the cost. The right hand gives the way God Gives. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. We need more right-handed giving. It's not tight-fisted. It's open-handed with an open heart. It's not self-justifying. It's not about what others think but this audience of one. And so, church, as we continue on in this Lenten season, connecting our generosity to the generosity that God pours out for the world in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, May we be generous the way God is generous. May we not be hard-hearted. May we not be tight-fisted. May we not care what others think, and even to the point not caring about all of these things that we've constructed, about what's important when it comes to money, in our left hand. But let us hold our right hand open and give generously to the work and witness of the kingdom of God. Amen.